Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning on this final day of the month of April. It is a good day to consider um, Q1 earnings. Uh, some of them are really quite staggering. Um, I want you to consider God's return on investment in your life today. What's God's Q1 returns in terms of the first quarter of this year? We want our lives to be an abundant harvest of righteousness for God to his glory uh, so good day to do a fruit inspection if you haven't done one lately, uh, recognizing that God intends for us and provides for us to produce good fruit in our in our lives as Christians in the world today. And we have a stark reminder this morning of just how quickly a great celebration can turn into uh, a mass tragedy. At least 44 people have died as a result of a what is being described as a stampede at a religious festival of Orthodox Jews um, in Israel. It appears that what happened is that the uh, police set up what uh, turned into basically a tunnel um, at the at the bottom of um, a set of metal steps that became very slippery. And as people were descending uh, the mountain, they had to then pass down this set of slippery metal steps that uh, then you know was a way of controlling their uh, their exodus from the event. Um, and uh, as people slowed down to descend those steps, um, other people crushed in upon them from behind, uh, 150 uh, individuals at least wounded, six uh, in the hospital uh, in critical condition, and at least 44 people um, have died. Uh, let us be praying for these folks who, according to their tradition, need um, need for those funerals to take place today and be buried before sundown when Sabbath begins, um, because on the Jewish Sabbath, um, bodies can't be buried. I was reminded um, of the plight of Job uh, as I read this headline this morning. I was reminded of how uh, Job's family was gathered together, all of his children uh, and his uh, and his children's spouses and their children all gathered together uh, in one house. They were having uh, a great celebration and um, it tells us in Job chapter 1 that a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell in upon all those young people, and they uh, all died. And it is a good reminder of just how quickly um, celebrations can turn into tragedy. And so let us be mindful today of, um, of both of the celebrations of life. Let us be rejoicing with those who rejoice and let us be um, attentive today to the tragedies of life, weeping with those who weep. All right, Matthew uh, Hawkins is up next. He and I are going to survey a number of life-related headlines from across the country. We'll be right back.
All right, joining me now, Matt Hawkins. You can find him on Twitter at MT Hawk. He's the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Hey, Matt, welcome back. I good morning, Carmen. Oh, I had oh, my good mic morning. Muted. Sorry about that. Oh, that's all right. That's, my that's fault. all right. That's Operator it. error. Good morning. Happy Friday. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> freak you out. <laughs> good morning. Happy Friday. My heart um, is skipping a little bit here. Friday. I know. I, I know. Okay. I, I created some anxiety from for Paul this morning already because I didn't actually um, jump on until like um, five fifty nine. Oh, I'm used to that. And that's not a problem. <laughs> I, I used to I used to I used to produce radio. I I'm, I'm sympathetic. I've I've been there. I know exactly the I know exactly the feeling of the heart spike that Paul just experienced. Uh, all right. I wish. Um. You know what? Hi. Then we have to start in Idaho because there we have a heartbeat. Idaho. Uh. We have heartbeat legislation. Yeah. So let's start with that one in our roundup of life news from around the country. Let's start in Idaho. Yeah. So for context, uh, naturally, the United States has 50 states and what uh, pro-life, what the pro-life movement learned early in the Obama administration is that when you don't anticipate uh, anything getting done at the federal level, there's lots of stuff we can do at the state level. And turns out that's been relatively fruitful over the last uh, uh, decade or so. And uh, so what you have here is a number of uh, states passing life-related legislation and in Oklahoma, that is a a heartbeat ban. Basically, it, it will ban uh, abortions once uh, heartbeats are uh, discovered um, in in little babies. And that uh, again, again, I, I I told Paul off air I was gonna. I won't, we won't have to dwell much on this, but the the media bias in reporting on these things is pretty thick uh, and quite obvious. So it's the so-called heartbeat ban. Uh, according to CNN, um, so-called. Yeah, so I saw and, those scare uh, quotes around around the word heartbeat. Um, I mean, uh, it either is a heartbeat or it isn't a heartbeat, right? Yeah, so I know. I do, I mean, we're I do we're think supposed to follow the science, right? Uh, so yeah. it's uh, this is a science-based kind of thing. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's re- requires you know, the, uh, when once there's a fetal heartbeat, uh, which is uh, uh, discovered by um, by, you know, OBG folks, doctors, uh, when a woman goes and gets a test for pregnancy and uh, a little several weeks in, uh, test that heartbeat. We, uh, the, uh, Idaho says uh, we should not uh, abort babies um, once that once that's proven. Um, and you know, frankly, frankly, Cameron, I feel attention here uh, on on these bills. Um, I, I'm 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 skeptical about the willingness and the uh, consensus among the public to uh, ban abortion this early. I think uh, later bans are there's more public consensus that again this doesn't change the rightness or wrongness of the uh, abortion act itself. I'm just uh, thinking through politically speaking, govern governing wise, what is uh, what is good for longevity and long public long lasting public policy. At the same time, I feel the immediacy that this is when life begins, or I mean, we believe it it begins at conception, right? Um, but heartbeat, the the heartbeat ban is kind of its own apologetic, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That that's the part it's of the reason It's hard to they deny a beating heart, right? It's yeah. Hard to deny beating heart. Uh, hard to deny the die that there's uh, there's not life there when the heart is beating. So, uh, but I just kind of want to put that out. Like I, I do feel that tension um, between what what we think might be possible um, for the public to agree on for some you know legislation and public policy to last a long time. I think we want it. We want to outlaw abortion for a long time right and so i'm just i i don't want any any backlash <clears throat> against uh, kind of moving too early but again 
this is, you know, abortion, uh, uh, you know, on demand is a really, is really, uh, a bad and evil thing. And I think we want to, we want to end that. So, um, the, okay. I like, I so, like the effort at EDC. Yeah. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to do a quick roundup of a couple of headlines here related to this. So Idaho was actually the second state this week, um, with a ban related to, uh, to heartbeat. Also Montana governor, um, Greg Giaforte, I might be mispronouncing that, signed a 20-week abortion ban uh, and two uh-huh. other um, abortion bills as well. Um, one of those was the uh, Pain-Capable Unborn Child Act, um, and another is uh, one related to uh, the heartbeat as well. Um, in yeah. Oklahoma, we have a bill uh, signed immediately uh, into law outlying abortion in Oklahoma, if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns the 73 case that legalized abortion, and that would be Roe v. Wade. So that's called a so-called trigger bill um, that was signed this week. What's going on there in Oklahoma? Yeah. So what you have is uh, in the the era where there's a lot of anticipation and and hopefulness on the pro-life side that – with uh, the Supreme Court structured now the way it is, uh, with six uh, six justices that theoretically have have re- at least do not like how Roe Ro versus Wade was decided, and may be may or may not be themselves pro life um, in the in the era of anticipating a, a Roe v. Wade overturning, the question is, what happens if Roe v. Wade is overturned? Well, the short answer is that it becomes uh, a 50-state uh, free-for-all, meaning the state, it, it doesn't just, overturning Roe v. Wade doesn't just outlaw abortion, it just puts it back, the authority back on the states, uh, which Roe versus Wade took away. So what what these states are doing is passing these, these quote-unquote trigger bills that basically says, in the event that Roe versus Wade is overturned, uh, then our state will outlaw abortion. Uh, and, uh, no doubt that uh, more abortion-friendly states have done the opposite, right? Uh, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, they've uh, there's some states that have already uh, basically done their own pro-choice trigger uh, bill that will basically permit abortion. So this is going to go into the Supreme Court regardless, because even if it, uh, even if they, you know, overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, then you still have a lot of questions about the out, out flow of that and uh, what falls to the states. Um, do we have time to talk about the Bradley article? The, uh, the Bradley, sure. Over, yes, absolutely. Over, yeah. So given all these, this kind of popcorn across the states of pro-life oh, legislation. Hey, Paul, says, Paul uh, says we have yeah. to take a quick break before we talk about the Bradley okay, we'll article. About, so, okay, great. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. I am talking with Matthew Hawkins. We're going to come back with a headline related to whether or not um, Roe v. Wade is really uh, possibly in the crosshairs right now. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with uh, Matt Hawkins. We're talking about some life headlines from across the country. All right, uh, Matt, let's jump to the one um, that really does pose the question, uh, is there an opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade? Yeah, so Gerard Bradley is a professor of law at University of Notre Dame, um, and he's uh, written a piece in First Things called An Opportunity to Overturn Roe. And uh, what he's doing here is something of a court 
analysis or a court speculation uh, based on a little bit of inside baseball, but he's basically watching uh, the actions of the court um, related to a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. Uh, and last year, almost a year ago in June, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down a Mississippi law that prohibited abortion uh, with very limited exceptions after 15 weeks of gestation. And uh, Mississippi basically filed something called review. Uh, so it gets struck down by a federal appeals court, and then the states basically applied to the Supreme Court for something called review or a cert petition. Um, and what Bradley's pointing out here is that SCOTUS has done nothing on this case, uh, and it's it's basically disposed of hundreds of other uh, cert petitions, right? Because uh, basically the, the question is um, – Will the Supreme Court take it up or not? Uh, and lots of these things, they just uh, swap back to the lower courts. Um, and Bradley basically observes that it's been, you know, 10 months now and the court's done nothing with this while having disposed of a lot of other things. So he's basically saying what gives, what's going on with the fact that uh, the court has taken no action on on this Mississippi uh, case. Um, and so this is pretty interesting stuff uh, because he makes the case that basically Dobbs, the Dobbs case um, tees up the question of overruling, well, overruling Roe as well as any other case uh, does. Uh, and so he's, he's doing a little bit of a court analysis here um, because we're, theoretically we have six justices that are predisposed to not like Roe uh, for any number of reasons. Um, and so – Basically, I think you have to have basically he's, the way this stuff works. He basically explains that there are either at least two or upwards of six of those justices that uh, that don't want aren't, aren't aren't ready to do this, or they're trying to figure out what to do with it. Uh, there's some speculation that they've decided to deny it, but somebody's writing a really lengthy explanation. Um, but it's something to watch, uh, and it's a pretty insightful. Uh, analysis over at First Things uh, by Gerard Bradley. What struck you about that article? Yeah, I think the the fact that it's this case has been sitting there um, and it hasn't gotten any attention, I think, is worthy of attention. Like that's part of the conversation, mm -hmm. right? What the court chooses to pay attention to um, gives us some sense of whether or not they are ready to take up an issue. And so the question of whether or not they are ready to take up the issue of reversing Roe um, is, you know, I think the question in front of us. I don't want to miss the Arizona, um, the Arizona yeah, yeah. conversation in the midst of this. So can we jump to that, um, that yeah, conversation? I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is the most comprehensive pro-life legislation I've seen, in, you know, passed by a, a state here in the union. Um, as Arizona's new law confers civil rights on fetuses at any stage of development, it does exclude embryos created via vitro and infer fertilization. So that's a conversation mm, piece yeah. in and of itself. Forbids the mailing or delivery of abortion-inducing drugs, um, which we have, you and I have talked about in the past. Requires yep. fetal remains to be buried or cremated. Imposes new reporting requirements on medical facilities. Prohibits public educational institutions from performing abortions unless the mother's life is in immediate jeopardy. Prevents public money from supporting research involving abortions or embryo transfers. Imposes criminal sanctions on those who perform abortions based on genetic conditions like Down syndrome. Um, this is yeah. sweeping legislation as that? far as uh, I mean, I mean, that's that's really pretty extraordinary. I mean, hats off to Governor Ducey for um, for signing this into law. Uh, against great opposition. And there's really not a headline out there that does justice to what is happening in Arizona. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's remarkable, um, and not not to the least. I forget if you mentioned, you know, it it uh, did, you know rejects abortions for reasons of uh, uh, of um, diagnoses of um, uh, um, you know um, genetic disorders, right, genetic, genetic yeah, right. right, no, and that's um, the lead is, in all of these so including stories, Down right? syndrome, yeah, yeah, including yeah. Down syndrome and cystic fibrosis. So I think I like the way you you framed it. It's a human rights legislation uh and it's pretty pretty sweeping i mean i feel like the lead is buried in all of these stories all of the stories that i have found focus on um you know hey defending defending doctors uh because it makes that it makes it criminal to abort a healthy fetus uh, you know that's that's totally uh totally viable except that it is a, a person who has been diagnosed with a genetic condition that's not preferred by the parents um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I think that I think that's where that's the headline news you see everywhere. But it should lead with the conferring of civil rights on fetuses at any stage of development. Yeah. Like that's the lead here, I think. That's big. Yeah. Yeah. The conferring of civil rights is pretty remarkable. Um, and, and it's what it's what we're looking for. Right. However, we do yeah, that. This is the legislation um, we're looking for. I mean, yeah. if folks are listening and they're like, hey, I want some model legislation to propose to my, um, you know, to my state legislature. I'd go look at what Arizona has done. This is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the other thing that uh, the Supreme Court could be waiting for is something what they call a, a circuit split. Right. So you have a situation mm-hmm. where two federal appeals courts uh, have split on something um, and where uh, they might be waiting for a different case. Right. Uh, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows? Who knows what's going inside in, in, inside the heads of Supreme Court uh, justices? But uh, it's all it's all very interesting to watch. Uh, and sadly, uh, with lack of leadership uh, in this era of uh, the U.S. Congress, it's uh, this this is going to be decided, I think, again, at the court uh, and not by federal legislators. Yeah. Um, All right. So we don't have time to talk about it today, but I thought that the observation by the Washington Post related to the Catholicity of of the president was super interesting today as well. Um, You know, this question of who gets to decide what it means to be really Catholic or Catholic at all, Mm -hmm. um, and that that is being massively redefined by a president who identifies as Catholic but um, doesn't uh, doesn't go to confession with the kind of regularity that many practicing Catholics do and does not uphold the Catholic Church's position in this area, um, specifically uh, in relationship to to life and the dignity of every human life, particularly the preborn. So. Lots of conversations um, to be had on this front today. We love having them with you. Matt Hawkins, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Always a joy, Carmen. Thank you. Yeah. Have a great weekend. You guys can follow Matt on Twitter at MTHawk. You can find him online at MatthewTHawkins.com. We'll be right back. All right, a couple of other headlines that you're going to hear today. One um, certainly related to the uh, to the NFL draft. Yes, that is uh, taking place. It started. I don't think there were any big surprises in uh, in, in the first round. So there you go. Um, also getting uh, earnings reports from companies across the country and around the world. And big tech crushed earnings reports this week um, with no signs of slowing down. Facebook stock hit an all-time high Wednesday after reporting a 48% revenue growth uh, over the previous year. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Snapchat, um, or Google's parent company, Alphabet, um, on and on and on. We're talking about um, billions of dollars uh, in, in unex- well, I won't even say unexpected, but the expectations blew out Wall Street's predictions. Um, and so... 
it definitely tech is on, um, uh, yeah, tech is on the rise, which is an interesting conversation for us to have when we talk about the un, like the incredible influence that this handful of companies has in our lives. I mean, right now, uh, Paul and I are depending on um, the internet to bring this broadcast to you. Uh, you know, I rely on a number of of apps and lots of technology. Um, provided by all of these companies to do what we do here each and every day. And I bet you do as well. How many times has the Amazon truck uh, been to your house in the past year? Mine? Yeah, pretty frequently. Um, all right. So that is that might be a conversation for the day. Um, you know, how reliant we have become on tech. Might want to be prepared for those conversations as well. One of the headlines that I have been paying attention to, or actually several of them, are in relationship to Christian higher education across the country. Um, and because we are a Christian university here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, um, we thought it would be helpful to catch up with Dr. Alan Curitan, president of the university. We're going to talk across a range of headlines related to um, the Christian worldview, the reality of being a Christian university in today's cultural context, um, and, you know, some specific conversations about a couple of universities just to bring to the fore um, as as a way of getting the conversation going. So wonder uh, what you're thinking about in terms of Christian higher ed these days. Be praying for college presidents um, and faculty and students uh, and families, right? Everybody's making decisions right now about next year, and we want um, we want Christian families to really be seriously considering Christian higher ed. But even when you say that, um, you have a number of options uh, out there. So we're going to have a conversation uh, in just a moment with Dr. Alan Curitan. We'll be right back. I meet a lot of parents who have good intentions, trying to raise their kids to embrace high moral standards. But what happens when the once peaceful child turns into a teen spinning out of control? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. That situation is all too common. Parents wanting to do everything right, but watching their kids turn out all wrong. Hey, if you're in this position, take stock of your rules, boundaries, and beliefs. Have your parenting techniques shifted as your child gets older, or are you still enforcing rules that worked five years ago? I know your intentions are good, but I challenge you to stick to your beliefs while updating the way you communicate with your teens. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. So like other Christian families across the country with a graduating high school senior this year, uh, we are in the midst of uh, conversations about what's next and exactly how to approach it. And um, those are ongoing conversations in my household. Um, and why is that? Like, why do we not have kids who, you know, right after high school are like, oh, yeah, you know, off to college immediately? And I think that COVID has had um, a real impact on their enthusiasm to just jump right into a college experience that is no longer um, what they had expected. I mean, they have friends who were freshmen in college this past year for whom, um, you know, that experience was 
very, very different than than they might have expected. Um, those who are sophomores in college, um, you know, same story. And so it's um, it's an interesting conversation to be having. The worldview conversation is the one that leads at my house. Um, my high school senior is most interested in going to an institution of, of higher ed where the Christian worldview is the dominant worldview. She wants to be um, educated in a way that is consistent with with Scripture and with who God is and the redemptive arc over all of human history. You know, yeah, she wants to take hard sciences, and yeah, she wants to, um, you know, go to a school that has a drama program because that's what she loves to do as her, you know, as her sort of sideline activity. But um, of greatest concern to her is, am I going to be in a place where I'm going to be helped to understand hard academic things and real things that are going on in the world, uh, am I going to be helped to do so from a Christian worldview? And not every school that identifies, let's say, with a, with a historically Christian denomination um, is actually operating today by, excuse me, what you would regard as authentically Christian principles. And so um, that's something that you should examine. Like, don't just take on face value that because a school started as an outpost of, let's say, I don't know, the Presbyterians or um, or the Methodists. I'm thinking here about Princeton, which started as an outreach of Presbyterians, um, or Duke, which started as a as an outreach of United Methodists. Um, don't just assume that because it, it has that in its heritage, that it also has it in the forefront of what it's doing now, that it's, it's that it is the way that that school is now operating. You have to ask harder questions than that, right? So you can't just take things on face value anymore. And um, I think that's writ large by the headline that I referenced at the end of my conversation with Matt Hawkins. Just because somebody self-identifies as Roman Catholic, if they're not actually aligning not only their worldview, but their political views with that, then how influential is that faith in their day-to-day life? Like, that's a good question for us to be asking of ourselves and others today. Uh, institutions of higher ed are are faced today with all kinds of competing expectations. Uh, the cultural context in which they are seeking to operate is literally fluid, um, and that is really, really challenging. So I want you to just consider for a moment a school that might be near you, where you live, um, that is that is Christian and really trying to uh, lead from that and witness from that and the challenges that they face when, let's say, alumni have different expectations culturally of that institution than that than the board of directors who is trying to uphold um, the school's mandate and vision and walk by faith into that uh, into that today. And today it's hard. Like it's hard. It's hard to be a Christian in the culture today. It's really hard to be a Christian in the culture of uh, American higher education. So let's be praying for folks today. Let's be praying for faculty um, in Christian universities. Let's be praying for administrators in, um, in, in Christian higher ed. Let's be praying for the decisions that they're making today about whether or not they are going to continue, um, continue receiving students who are relying on federal grants and federal scholarships. Because here's what happens. If the student is going to rely on federal grants or federal scholarships, then that means that the institution is going to be in receipt of federal funds. And when you receive federal funds, you become beholden to the rules and regulations of the federal government in relationship to everything. And so as we um, continue to 
lobby our um, our representatives against voting for the Equality Act. We also sort of have in view that it may well pass. And if it does, um, what comes with that at every level of um, of the federal government's influence in our lives is pretty overwhelming. And so the Equality Act, if you've not been paying attention, is this sweeping um, SOGI legislation, sexual orientation, gender identity. That's the um, that's the acronym you should now be looking for, particularly uh, in in terms of articles that are covering legislation across the country. You're looking for SOGI laws, S-O-G-I, sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, that's the lingo of the day in terms of conversations related to laws that uh, influence uh, not only language, but practices related to housing. And so it's a housing conversation that emerges in, um, in, this, in this first concern today related to Christian higher ed and what's happening in the world. And I, I lift it up to you out of um, Inside Higher Ed. So Inside Higher Ed is a website that tracks what's going on in institutions of higher education across the country. And the article is College of the Ozarks Sues over anti-discrimination rule. Uh, The College of the Ozarks is a Christian college in Missouri. It has filed suit in federal district court challenging uh, a Biden administrative directive that prohibits, quote, discrimination based on gender and sexual identity um, in entities that are regulated by the Fair Housing Act. So are colleges and universities regulated by the Fair Housing Act? Well, they are um, if they are... um, if they are in receipt of any federal funds, any, emphasis on any. So the the lawsuit from the College of the Ozarks alleges that the directive from the Biden administration quotes, here's the quote, requires private religious colleges to place biological males into female dormitories and to assign them as female roommates. Now, let me tell you, as a person who is about to send um, a young person off to college, if I am sending my young person off to a Christian college, I certainly do not anticipate that when they are when 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 my stepdaughter is assigned a female roommate, I do not assume that I need to ask whether or not that is a biological female. My assumption at a Christian university is that that's going to be a biological female. Well, you cannot you can no longer make that assumption. The Biden administration is requiring private religious colleges who are regulated by the Fair Housing Act, which means they are in receipt of some federal money somewhere along the way in some form, um, that the Biden administration is now requiring those private religious colleges to place biological males into female dormitories and assign them as female roommates. The College of the Ozarks says in the lawsuit that um, it teaches that sex is determined at birth uh, as, uh, as given by God, that there is an objective gender, whether or not it differs from the internal sense uh, of a person's gender identity. So. Um, yeah, you're. This has now arrived at the, uh, you know, at the college, uh, at the Christian college doorstep, um, and so this is definitely a case that we're going to watch unfold. Not only in district court as the College of the Ozarks pursues their case, we're going to watch what other college and, uh, colleges and universities uh, come alongside the College of the Ozarks um, in this effort, and we're going to uh, watch uh, what happens. Um, as I would assume this case will ultimately rise um, through through the court process to possibly ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court. We have talked about the fact that um, elections have consequences. 
And elections have consequences that are not that don't come necessarily in the form of a change in law. Sometimes they come in the form of directives. Um, This one in relationship to uh, to housing. All right. uh, We're going to return to um, another headline related to Christian higher ed in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, so um, I know I teed up a conversation with Dr. Alan Curitan, so if he pops into the studio, we're going to bring him on immediately, um, but we're kind of assuming he's probably stuck in traffic somewhere, so blessings um, blessings on him because I know how frustrating that can be. Um, so let me, uh, let me address a listener question because I just really appreciate, um, uh, appreciate this and recognize that um, this is a real issue for us. So you see the word discrimination, and you say to yourself, how is it being used in the context that I am that I'm reading it or hearing it? And is that is that an accurate way to define the term? And is this a case of discrimination? Uh, and when we hear that term in the culture today, it it does mean a wide variety of things, does it not? And so let's talk about the word discrimination for just a moment. Um, the way the word discrimination is used um, in in legal terms uh, there's a question about whether or not it's intentional um, or if it is unintentional. Like, those are real realities. Did you intentionally discriminate against a, an individual based on um, some kind of uh, recognizable trait? So, um, a person is a woman and you discriminate against her because she is a woman. A person is... Uh, of a different skin color than you and you discriminate against them in some tangible way um, because of the color of their skin. And so when we, religion works the same way. Like if there is a person who, you know, maybe by the way that they are dressed um, is a member of, of a particular religious community and you discriminate against them because of that. So that's called animus. Like you are, um, you are treating them in a negative way, uh, in a perceptibly negative way. You are treating them in a way that is different than you treat everyone else. Well, let me just get right to the root of this for Christians. At the root of this for Christians is the question of whether or not we actually believe that every person is an image bearer of the living God. Because as soon as I start treating someone who is in some way different from me um, in a way that is Uh, punitive or negative or derogatory or dehumanizing uh, in any way. What I am attacking is not only that individual, but the image of God that they bear. So that's a, that other person is an image bearer of the living God. And so we talk about the treatment of people. We are talking about treating people with impartiality. Like God shows no partiality. That's the language that um, that I think we probably need to adopt in terms of a Christian understanding of of bad discrimination. There's a lot of good discrimination, though, by the way. Um, let me tell you, if I am thinking about letting somebody come and babysit my kids or my grandkids, that's probably more accurate now because, you know, we're sort of beyond the babysitting stage in terms of kids. But uh, picking a babysitter for your grandkids, 
Um, you're just going to take whoever, you know, for your eyes first fall upon uh, somebody in the parking lot of your local grocery store. And you're like, yeah, that person, let's have that person babysit. Like, you know, because they, they appear to be available. They don't they don't appear to uh, have have any other job or anything else going on right now. So let's have that person babysit our grandkids. No, you're probably going to be a little more discriminating than that. So discrimination um, is not a bad thing. It is it is the reality. I mean, we talk about people having a discriminating palate. You don't get to be a food critic unless you have a discriminating palate. Like that's actually a job qualification. Um, I discriminate every single day in terms of the headlines that I bring to you, the worldview that I uh, use, the lens through which I am uh, not only reading those headlines, but interpreting them. I'm discriminating. I mean, Paul can tell you. I'm super discriminating about who I share this platform with. I mean, because it's my responsibility to um, be presenting to you a gospel worldview and to platform other people who I think can be helpful in this conversation in terms of helping us live in a way that brings the influence of God to bear on every conversation. So I'm super discriminating. I mean, then I, we say no to a lot more people in terms of who wants to come on the program than we say yes. I'm discriminating uh, about the text that I read. We get lots of texts during the show. I don't read them all. I'm discriminating. Well, is that bad discrimination? Well, let me just say that there are some people who text in who would utterly take over the show if I read all of their text messages. Um, and so I'm not discriminating against the individual. I am being discriminating. I am hopefully showing good judgment in terms of what I choose to read. So when we talk about discrimination, there are those who are from a protected category. Yes, uh, Dr. Castro, who texted that word in. Thank you um, so much. That was the word I was searching for a moment ago. Um, And, you know, because you're probably saying to yourself, she's kind of riffing this morning. Yeah, she's riffing this morning because she had a conversation planned that isn't now happening. And so she's conversing with you. Yep. So what do you think about the term discrimination? How has the uh, the cultural understanding of the term evolved over time? How do you interact with that term? Um, is discrimination uh, contextual? Um, how do we how do we understand the term in terms of protected categories? And what if there's a category that suddenly is added to the protected category that we're not sure lines up with reality? That is a challenge. And that's a challenge that we face in our nation as we have legislators who are contemplating the Equality Act. Uh, Every time you vote, you are discriminating. Your vote is an act of discrimination. You say, no, my vote is an act of my conscience being brought to bear on the process. Yes, absolutely. But it's discrimination because you're voting for one person over and against everyone else. So you and I... Um, when you when you order something off a menu and you don't, uh, that's discrimination. You're discriminating against the taco when you order the burrito. You're discriminating against the Dr. Pepper when you order the, di- the, the Diet Coke. I am frequently discriminating against tap water because I don't like the taste of it. So, um, so discrimination is something that we do all the time in literally every context. But there's a different kind of discrimination that is under necessary conversation in the culture. And that's the conversation about people who are in what in our culture we call protected categories. And um, and the way that it is used in law and the way that it is used in constitutional law 
Um, and it's helpful to understand the difference. And so there you go. Um, thank you to those of you chiming in on this topic this morning. Let's see. This person says, well, you're wonderful and I love it. And you did that quite well. See, now I have discriminated against those of you who don't like the riff this morning uh, and, and for, out of preference for those uh, who do. Let's see. Um, let's see. The discrimination word is overused. Um, and let's be not let's not be lazy in our word choice. All right. So um, let's not be lazy today in our word choice. That's probably a good segue into a very brief break on this last day of April. When we come back, um, I'm going to lift up a scripture passage for you to consider about God's Q1 ROI. So quarter one is over. God is looking for each of us to give him a report on his return on the investment that he's made in us. We're going to talk about God's Q1 ROI when we come back. All right. uh, God is looking for a return on investment today. He has uh, invested you with the very spirit, his very spirit, spirit of the living God. Uh, He has attached you to himself through the true vine of Jesus. Encourage you to read John 15 today. In, you know, in answer to the question, where in the word are you today? Why don't you read John 15? Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. He talks about the fruitfulness of our life um, and that God has this expe- expectation that we would be people who bear fruit and not just any kind of fruit, um, but fruit that is ever more abundant uh, and fruit that is good, fruit that is good. Check out uh, Galatians chapter five if you are needing to do a fruit inspection today and you you know, you don't have in mind uh, the distinction of the good fruit from the bad fruit. God is discriminating uh, in this in this sense and in this case. Jesus actually talks about the discriminating nature of God in relationship to his expectations uh, of our producing an abundance of righteousness in our lives. That's all in John chapter 15. My favorite part of John 15 is Jesus just talking about the way that we abide in him. And so I want you to consider for just a moment... Are you abiding in Christ? Not only are you connected to him as a, as a branch to a vine, but are you abiding in him? Are you resting in him? Are you enjoying him? Are you drawing your life from him? Are you producing good fruit for him? Are you reproducing by faith for him? Let's abide in Christ today in the same way that Christ abides in God. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.